Let's read our text and we'll pray. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Father, thank you for your word today. We pray you'll bless us, Lord, as we meditate now on this important instruction. Lord, you're concerned about our lives. You're concerned about our faith. Our faith should be one that leaves tracks, that impacts our lives, that leaves behind evidence. Lord, our faith should be such that it affects even how we look to the future, and even how we deal with life's uncertainties. Lord, we pray this morning you'll give us insight and understanding into your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several several years ago, an article appeared in the AJC. The report was entitled, A Tale for Posterity. The subtitle read, Squirrel Somehow Makes Way into Commode, Scratches Gwinnett Woman's Behind. Whoa, sounds serious. Let me read to you the article. It was sort of like that campfire story about a snake or about the strange things that happen in some old house. But it really happened to Kim Richardson on Tuesday, really. I went to the bathroom and lifted the lid and sat down, the Lawrenceville woman said. That's when I felt something scratching my behind. Kim's hurried investigation revealed a squirrel. The swimming rodent somehow navigated the plumbing, eventually making port at the toilet bowl. Mrs. Richardson has the scratches to prove it. Well, the article quotes Kim as saying, I almost died. I slammed the toilet down and called my husband at work and told him he had to come home. By the time he rushed in from his job, the animal had drowned. You're caring about the dead squirrel? What about poor Kim? An animal control officer commented, we get calls about squirrels in the house, that, but never in the commode. When Mrs. Richardson finally steeled herself to return to the bathroom, she used another commode. I used the guest bathroom, she said. This could only happen to me. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, there are times and there are places that are absolutely sacred. One of which is my time in the bathroom. Having lived in a family with four kids over many years now, there have been times when the only solitude, the only serenity whatsoever came when I locked myself in the bathroom. There I could sit down and read the newspaper and actually relax for a few minutes. The bathroom was the one place that you knew you wouldn't be interrupted. Or will you? Are you really alone? Is the bathroom really a safe place? Well, after reading about Kim's surprise, 
I now check to see if I've got company. But Kim's story is not unlike the cold, harsh, brutal realities of life. For just when you think you've escaped the rat race, and you're finally alone, and you're feeling safe, and you drop your guard, and you kick back and relax, and you regain some semblance of sanity to your otherwise hectic life, all of a sudden, ouch! Without warning, from the blind side, out of nowhere, life reaches up and bites you on the bottom. Ever happened to you? Life is not always as commodious as we had hoped it would be. At times, life can get downright frustrating. Life can even bowl you over. You're never quite sure what you'll find when you raise the lid on life. You know, one of the features of married and family life that has had a profound effect on me is the ambiguity and the uncertainty that comes with a house full of individual personalities. When it was just me, there were only three people that I had to worry about. Me, myself, and I. Life was simple. Life was uncomplicated. For the most part, my life was all planned out. It was predictable. I did what I wanted to do and avoided what I wanted to avoid. I had a lid on my life. But when I got married, there was now a second person in the mix. What does she want to do? What is she doing? What is she up to? Where is she at? Is she on a bicycle somewhere? (laughs) Now I had two sets of circumstances to cope with, two sets of dangers to avoid. Life got far more complicated. Now I had to plan for two lives and think about two lives. And then along came four kids. That makes six people to worry about and six sets of circumstances to cope with and six sets of dangers to avoid. And then the kids got married. And today my life is totally off the chain and out of control. It's now impossible for me to cover everybody's tracks. You know, when my first child was little, I could hold his hand, walk him around. Then I had two children. It was so sweet. I have two hands. I have two children. We could just walk together in harmony. And then I had the third one. And now all of a sudden, it's a little hard. It's doable, but it's a little harder. You've got to hop on one, and you've got to take the other foot and kind of round up the, the stray kid with your free foot. But then I had four kids. What do you do? There's always one running out there out of control. I'm just saying with four kids, it's impossible to keep a hand on them all. Family life has been a constant reminder to me of life's uncertainties. Well, single or married, I think you'll find that life is pretty unpredictable. It's very erratic. We live in a fallen world. Life gets the hiccups. God's perfect order gets subjected to a degree of ambiguity because of our sin. In every life, there's volatility. Rarely do projects go off without a hitch. I hope you can hit a curve because life loves to throw curveballs. It's been said life is the continual process of getting used to things we never expected 
Every life is full of surprises. So, how do you respond to life's uncertainties? How do you cope when your life goes haywire, when the squirrel winds up in the toilet and bites you on the bottom? What do you do? Do you slam the lid and call your husband? What if your problems don't drown? What if you don't have a husband? What if you are the husband? How do you react when your serenity gets interrupted and your security gets threatened? How do you react when disappointments reach up and bite you on the bottom? You know, I've met people who've grown angry and bitter at life. I've met other folks who've become apathetic. They've just sort of caved in to feelings of despair. Other people live in constant fear. They're always sitting on pins and needles. Still other folks barricade themselves behind protective walls. They keep engagement with life to a minimum. They waltz around situations they can't control. They never embrace life wholeheartedly for fear of what might be hid beneath the lid. How do you handle life's unexpected scratches? Well, in the last few verses here of James chapter 4, we're given five principles for coping with life's uncertainties. Here are five ways to handle bites on the bottom. And I've kind of boiled these principles down into five words because I want you to remember them in the heat of the battle, when you're in a pinch. These are five words. They all begin with the letter S, and they're all a single syllable. Here they are. This is where your pen needs to go to work. Stoop, stake, stretch, stop, and stress. Stoop and stake, stretch and stop, and stress. Now here's how you handle life's bites on the bottom. First you stoop. You need to humble yourself before God. He's in control, you're not. Second, you need to stake your life on God's faithfulness. You need to make your plans contingent on His plans. Third, you need to stretch and learn to adapt to the situations that God allows in your life. Fourth, you need to stop taking yourself so seriously. And fifth, you need to stress living your life one day at a time. The first thing we need to do is we need to stoop down and humble ourselves. We need to submit our will and plans and ambitions to the will and plans and ambitions of God. James here is thinking of a Christian businessman in his congregation. This fellow supports his church. He's moral. He's responsible. He carefully thinks ahead. He's a planner. But he has made some bodacious, some outrageous claims. He's mapped out his life, his whole life, at least for the next year, without ever stopping to consider God in the formation of his plans. Here's a formal believer who's living a practical atheism. He has arranged every detail of his life without the first consideration of God's plan or God's will for him. Look closely at his bold and brash assumptions. First, in verse 15, 13, he says, today or tomorrow. Wait a minute, that's anticipation. But does he really know when he's going to begin his journey? I mean, a lot can happen to delay him. Been to the airport lately? Interruptions are possible. There are all kinds of hitches and glitches in life. How quickly plans can unravel. Then he says, 
we will go. That's participation. He might have made up his mind to go, but how does he know we are going to want to go? I mean, what if his partner gets sick? What if he backs out at the last minute? He even says to such and such a city, that's destination. What if the road is closed? What if he can't secure a visa? What if he can't get a business license to operate in that particular city? I mean, does he really know? Then he mentions spend a year there. That's duration. Is he sure? I mean, a year is a long time. 365 days, 8,760 hours, a little over a half a million minutes. An awfully lot can happen in that length of time. And then he says, buy and sell. That's occupation. How does this businessman know that the supplies will hold out and the recession will hold off? How does he know he'll be able to buy and then sell? Finally, his boast takes him way out on the limb, especially in our economy. He says, make a profit. That's expectation. In a tight economy, can you ever be sure you're going to make money? What if the overhead spikes or they raise taxes or a competitor moves in? This businessman that James describes, he's guilty of unbridled anticipation and participation and destination and duration and occupation and expectation. My point is, these are some really big plans for somebody who can't even predict tomorrow's weather. An old and wise King Solomon observed in Proverbs 27, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. It always amazes me how quickly God can shut down our fair city and alter the etched-in-stone plans of millions of hurried, busy people. Just dump a few inches of ice and snow on Atlanta, Georgia, and all the activity comes to a screeching halt. Powerful politicians, high-financed executives, People with a smartphone full of can't-miss appointments are suddenly stranding at home trying to stay warm by the fireplace. I love the sudden southern snowstorms. They teach us spiritual truths. You have places to be. You have things to do. You have promises to keep. Activities that absolutely demand your attention. Commitments you can't possibly break. And then one day you wake up and you can't even get your car out of the driveway. We get so caught up in our plans. We live as if we're in control. And then God one day stops us in our tracks. The snow says no. Suddenly my agenda is not so important after all. God reminds me that I'm not in control, that he's the one who calls the shots. Thomas Akempis put it, man proposes, but God disposes. Hey, to complain about my circumstances is my pride angry with God for upsetting my plans. That's why to cope with life's uncertainties, the first step is down. We need to stoop. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. He's the one that's important, not us. Remember the verse that prefaces our text, chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, to brag about your plans is foolish. In fact, James is sterner in his evaluation. He says in verse 16, all such boasting is evil. 
Well, first, we need to stoop and humble ourselves. But second, we need to stake our lives on God's will. We need to trust our lives to his faithfulness. You see, it's one thing to stoop before Almighty God. In fact, we'll all stoop sooner or later. But it's an entirely different matter to stake, to hinge or rely or attach my life to God's will. To say, Lord, I've stooped. Now, Lord, lead my steps. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, he was the most absolute despot history has ever seen. He conquered and ruled the whole known world. And God cared about this king. In fact, God did miracles in his court. When God called Daniel to go and interpret the king's dream, Nebuchadnezzar responded. He was amazed. He said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets. He bowed before the God of Daniel. When God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, again, Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree that no one should speak against their God. Because as he put it, there is no other God who can deliver like this. Again, he was stooping, but he's not staking, not yet. King Nebuchadnezzar stooped when he had to. When forced by the weight of the evidence, he humbled himself before God. But to stoop is not to stake. You see, to say that God is over me is not necessarily to say that I am putting myself under God. It's different. The king had never staked his life on God's will, not until God took drastic action. Daniel chapter 4 tells us how God drove Nebuchadnezzar mad. A fit of insanity happened. For seven years, he acted like a goat. He walked on all fours, fed out in the king's field. He chewed up the grass. I guess you could say God got his goat. This world leader was led around like an animal. The almighty God showed him his littleness. And when Nebuchadnezzar finally regained his sanity, he was a changed man. He, he says of God, the most high God does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth no one can restrain his hand now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven finally the king does more than just stoop he stakes he submits and surrenders his life to God he yields to God's will and he seeks out God's ways you see, according to James, we need to stake all of our plans on God. Both our short-range and long-range plans should be contingent on God's okay. James tells us here in verse 15 how to preface our plans. We should always be willing to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Understand, it's okay to plan. In fact, there are other Bible passages that encourage us to think ahead and prepare for life. We should plan. But we should never presume. On every plan we devise, we should always attach the stipulation, if the Lord wills. You know, the Puritans were fond of James's expression. They had a Latin equivalent, Deo Valente. It means God willing. They always preceded their plans with the caveat, God willing will do this or that. The early Methodists followed the same practice. In fact, when they signed their letters, they would always add the initials DV for Deo Valente. 
On the circulars they handed out to advertise their upcoming events, they would usually scribble on them the initials DV. They wanted you to read the fine print. For in every believer's life, our plans should be contingent on God's plans. You see, the book of James shows us what faith looks like in a believer's life. And real faith will always give God permission to interrupt my plans. Now, not that God needs my permission. (laughs) Of course he does it. But I need to give it. My permission has no effect on God's action, but it has a profound effect on my attitude. You see, faith leaves tracks. Am I willing to pray, Lord, I not only stoop before you, but Lord, I'm willing to stake my life on your will. Do as you please, Lord. Deo valente. We should never be resentful when God wants to interrupt or realign our plans. In fact, let me ask you this morning, what are you committed to today that God is not free to disturb in your life? Your answer will reveal your heart. Well, how do you handle life's bites on the bottom? You stoop, you stake, and then third, you stretch. You learn to be flexible. You understand that God is always making course corrections. And you embrace his alterations. When God recalibrates, you adjust accordingly. I love the old saying, a bend in the road is not the end of the road if we're willing to make the turn. When life surprises, you got to be flexible. It was a stormy night as the battleship plowed through the thick fog. The captain on the bridge, he saw a strange light off in the distance, just off the port bow. Light appeared to be closing in on his mighty ship. That's when the captain ordered the signalman to flash a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. But the reply came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain got angry. He sent another message. Alter your course 10 degrees. I am a captain. (laughs) But again, the answer upset him. Alter your course 10 degrees. I am a seaman third class. By now he's furious. He grabs a light himself. He fires off a message. Alter your course. I am a battleship. But then the reply stunned him. Alter your course. I am a lighthouse. Many a person has crashed on the rocks because they were too stubborn, too rigid to change their course. As Pastor Chuck says, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Our lives need the elasticity to survive the pulling and tugging and stretching that this pressure-packed world applies. Get stubborn, get rigid, and you'll eventually snap. Hey, pretend you're planning a vacation to Hawaii. Wouldn't that be a nice thing today? Let's all jump on a plane and go to Hawaii. Let's say you're planning a vacation. You got your shorts, your flip-flops, your snorkel. You got your surfboard all packed away. You're ready to go. And it's such a nice flight. The the flight attendants are all wearing Hawaiian shirts. You're, You're feeling great. But when the plane lands and you exit, all of a sudden you discover that you're not in Hawaii at all. You're in the Swiss Alps. How did this happen? 
Man, at first you'd be upset. You'd demand a refund. You'd want the next plane to Hawaii. But you know, by the time you land in Honolulu, your vacation would be over. That's why you would need to think this thing through a minute. Wait a minute. The Swiss Alps? That's not really a bad place to take a vacation. But it's going to require some flexibility and some adjustments on your part. You're going to need to buy some warm clothes. You're going to need to trade in your surfboard for some snow skis. But you know what? If you make the adjustments, you can have a truly enjoyable vacation. And this is how the real world works. I like the old adage, when life gives you a lemon, make lemonade. Life is full of serendipitous twists and unexpected turns. It said, life is like a live drama. It rarely follows the script. That's why successful actors learn to do a lot of ad-libbing and improvising. Hey, just because the sets always change doesn't mean the drama's destined to flop. In fact, a life can be quite entertaining if the actors are flexible and adaptable. A person who has faith learns to improvise. He learns to go with the flow. I've heard it put, a makeshift hut is better than a mansion that never got built. God sends the breeze. We can't alter it. We can't change its direction. All we can do is lift our sails and cooperate with the prevailing winds. We need to stoop and stake and stretch. And there's a fourth ingredient for handling life's bites on the bottom. We need to stop taking ourselves so seriously. Most of us rush through life as if the sun rises and sets on our own personal plans. Have you ever been bummed out because something interrupted your day and you didn't get to go grocery shopping on your grocery shopping day? Oh, wow. We pity you. How terrible. Or, or an emergency arose and you didn't get to mow the grass on the day that you'd planned? Wow, your world is crumbling. You know, we establish these self-imposed deadlines and we act like the world is going to collapse if we don't meet them. You know, quite frankly, I hate the word deadline. I've missed many deadlines in my life and I'm not dead yet. I have very few responsibilities that deserve the title deadline. Truth be known, much of what I consider crucial and critical, God probably considers trivial. Too often I value an activity based on some temporary measurement rather than eternal and spiritual standards. You know, it's amazing how much of what was once important in the world is now a forgotten memory. Issues that were considered major accomplishments at the time have now been reduced to an answer to a trivia question. For example, name the first American to walk in space. If you know it, don't say it. Most of you don't know it. It was an impressive accomplishment at the time. But do you recall Ed White? I mean, what about the most decorated soldier in World War II? Surely we all would remember a war hero. But did the name Audie Murphy come to mind? Can you recall Gerald Ford's vice president? Vice president, no less. It was Nelson Rockefeller, but we've long forgotten about it. In fact, I'll bet most of you can't even name the NFL's 2010 MVP. That's just this past year. It was Tom Brady. 
but how quickly significant accomplishments turn into fleeting memories. This is why we need to stop thinking the world hinges on our every action. I'll bet the sun comes up tomorrow even if you don't get to work. James reminds us of our lives that they're like a vapor that appears for a little time and then, poof, vanishes away. Our lives are like a puff of hot breath on a cold morning. Here one second, gone the next. At least our earthly lives. Job himself said of himself in Job 7 verse 6, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Author Mike Mason puts it this way, Our lives are like curly cues of fire cut briefly in the dark with a glowing stick. Think of your life as a bottle rocket on a dark night. Think of yourself as a sparkler. You light up for a moment, you dance and sizzle in the dark for a few seconds, and then you fizzle out, and boom, you're gone. Centuries ago, the Eastern Emperor of Christendom crowned in the city of Constantinople. He received an interesting gift at his coronation. He was presented with four marble slabs and was told to choose the one he wanted for his tombstone. Notice at the moment of his greatest elevation, he was reminded of his ultimate demise, his mortality. Oh, he might be a king for a few years, but not forever. In light of life's brevity, Psalm 90 verse 12 declares, So teach us to number our days. Life is short. But that's not to suggest it's unimportant. The life we live matters much, just not for the reasons we so often attach to it. In the end, the value of your life will not be measured in terms of purses, but people. Not in terms of accomplishments, but relationships. Not in terms of how much you got done, but on who you grew to be. I'll cope better with life's uncertainties when I remember that in God's view, what I do and where I go are not nearly as crucial as who I am and who I'm with. What excites God about our lives is our character, not our career. On the final day, my relationship with God and others is what will matter most. And this is why we need to stoop and stake and stretch and stop taking ourselves so seriously. And finally, we need to stress living our lives one day at a time. It's so true. Yard by yard, life is hard. Inch by inch, life's a cinch. Eternal life starts today, not tomorrow, not when I die. The Christian life is not a life on hold. Rest and love and joy and boldness begins today. Christianity is more than a dream for a better tomorrow. It's a dynamic for a better today. This is why I need to live my life one day at a time. You know, when I first studied James chapter 4, I really had a difficult time fitting verse 17 into the context. James says, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. What does obedience to God have to do with life's uncertainties? And then it hit me. It's the uncertainties of life that cripple my strength to obey God today. When I'm worried about the future, I tend to forget the present. I I can get so preoccupied in what might happen later that I forget what God's called me to do right now. Worries tend to crowd out duties. 
Worry can become exhausting. It's been said, you can't change the past, but you can ruin a perfectly good present by worrying about the future. Tomorrow's trouble saps us of the strength we need to fight today's battles. Energies and resources get wasted on worry rather than applied to challenges and opportunities. You know, it's interesting, the word worry, it originates from a German word, vergen. It means to strangle or to choke. And isn't that exactly what worry does? It puts us in a chokehold. It keeps us from enjoying today for fear of tomorrow. While you have the opportunity, James says, do good and obey God. Once there was a man, he was cleaning out his desk, and he, he found a claim ticket for a pair of shoes he'd sent to be repaired 10 years earlier. Well, that afternoon, he had some time to kill. And so he dropped by the shop, and he turned in his 10-year-old ticket. <laughs> the repairman went into the back room to search for the shoes. When he returned, empty-handed, the customer sort of mocked him. He said, well, I guess you couldn't find my shoes. The repairman said, no, I found them, but they'll be ready next Friday. <laughs> Here's the point. We fail to get things done, not because we have too little time, but because we think we have plenty of time left when we don't. God doesn't promise us tomorrow. He calls us to do what needs to be done today. Procrastination is not just a bad habit. It's a sin. Those who know to do good and put it off are not pleasing to God. We'll do a better job of handling the uncertainties of life, the unexpected bites on the bottom, if we live our lives one day at a time. This is what Jesus told us to do. Matthew chapter 6. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, let's sum up what we've learned this morning. Why don't we boil it down into five words? How about that? First, we need to stoop and humble ourselves before God. He's in control and we're not. We need to stake and trust God enough to make our plans contingent on His plan. We need to stretch and learn to be flexible when God decides to change things up. And then we need to stop taking ourselves so seriously and finally stress living our lives one day at a time. You know, I wish I could assure you that you'll never get scratched by life. <laughs> that there's nothing sinister lurking beneath the lid of your life. But I can't. Painful surprises are unavoidable. And yet if you follow the truths here in James chapter 4, you'll be an overcomer. Situations will scratch your flank, but they don't have to damage your faith. Real faith leaves tracks. It impacts even how we face life's uncertainties. Father, we thank you for your word today, for your love for us. We ask, Lord, that you bless us. And Lord, when life reaches up and bites us unexpectedly, Lord, help us to respond as we've been taught today. Help us to hold fast to this passage. Let its truths become real in our hearts. Help us respond in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.